You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Let's pray together. Father, we come now to your word and we ask that you would be with us as we study it, and that you would give us wisdom and grace. And Father, that the God, that you, God of all peace, would help us to see Jesus this morning as we come to the text and hear what it has for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. On April 28, 2020, a Christian man died and went home to be with Christ. His name was Minkai. Minkai's story is a story of God's transforming and forgiving grace. In 1956, five missionaries, uh, Jim Elliott and Nate Sane among them, attempted to make contact and share the gospel with the Wadani tribe in the jungles of Ecuador. All five were speared to death by the very men they came to share Christ with. Many considered their lives a waste. One of the men who killed the missionaries was Minkai. The story is truly amazing. A few years after the attack, Minkai was led to Christ by Nate Saint's sister, Rachel Saint, and Elizabeth Elliot, the widow of Jim Elliot. It was then that he believed the gospel and became a light to his people, but not only that, a light to the world. Last week, Steve Saint, Nate Saint's son, who incredibly considered Minkai his adopted father, said this. Minkai was proof of God's redeeming and transforming power. He was one of my dearest friends in the world. Yes, he killed my father, but he loved me and my family. One of my grandsons is named Minkai. Minkai is one of thousands who came to know Christ through the lives and the deaths of those five missionaries. And you know, as I reflected on this story this past week, I thought of the quote that perhaps is most remembered uh, by Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott's quote that is probably most remembered. And that is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And what is he saying there? He's saying that true security comes from having something that you cannot lose. It's about basing your life on that, an unshakable rock. It's about basing your life on something that you cannot lose. For believers, God alone is our rock. True security is found in him alone. And this is what I think we'll discover from Hebrews 13 as we study it this morning. So if you have a Bible in front of you, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 13. Hebrews chapter 13, we're going to look at two verses, verses 5 and 6. Let's read these verses together. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. 
In these verses, we find the key to having and resting in God as our ultimate security. Is that something you long for? To be free from fear and anxiety, to have safety from danger and threat, to know true provision, peace, and protection. Friends, you and I want security, like a suit of armor against the blows of life. And this is not new. It is something that we have in common with those who lived in the first century and those who would have heard this letter, this letter to the Hebrews. They were living in a time where the church was experiencing persecution and the loss of much of what they held on to for security. And we want to explore how the author challenged them. This letter to the Hebrews is written because some of the early Christians had begun to drift away from Christ. And in response, the author of Hebrews maintains that there is no one better than Jesus. Simply, he exhorts them to hold fast to their confession. And now he comes to the end of his message where he concludes with some exhortations. Now, here lies, herein lies the danger of preaching an end of a letter. So much has been said before that we can easily disconnect our text from the letter itself. This is especially challenging when we talk about doing this or doing that. We can make it sound like here is how you become a Christian, by doing this or doing that. But that is certainly not the message of Hebrews. Rather, the letter goes into depth about the person and work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. And upon believing, we become new creatures. Listen to Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see, it's the blood of Christ, forgiveness first, then and only is their new life marked by service to God. It's not the other way around. With that in view, Hebrews 13 then shows us the, what new creation looks like. Someone who has experienced forgiveness in Christ exhibits first brotherly love, verse 1, and gospel hospitality, verse 2. They remember the imprisoned and mistreated in the body, verse 3. And they honor and uphold biblical marriage, verse 4. And that leads to the fifth exhortation, which is our text this morning. What I want you to see is that ultimate security is in God is a mark of new creation. For true security is only found in God. And there's three realities in our text that make this clear, and I want to look at each of those in turn. First, I want you to see this. Number one, money cannot secure you. Money cannot secure you. This is the reality I draw from the first half of verse 5. The author tells us, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So in this phrase, we find a, a negative and a positive command. Money cannot secure you, so don't love it, and be content with what you have. So let's look, first look at the negative command, what not to do. And it's this, 
don't love money. Now, the text is not warning us to keep ourselves free from money itself, as though we should live like Mark Boyle, the, quote, moneyless man, who lived a year without money. No, he's not saying treat money as an illusion. Rather, he's warning us against the love of money. It's what Paul describes in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10, where he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's certainly the sin of Demas who was in love with this present world. But what does this mean for you and me? It plainly means no one is exempt from this temptation, not the wealthy or the poor. I think the average person thinks, I don't have, good thing, I don't have money because, or I don't love money because I don't have enough of it. But have you considered that the presence of wealth does not automatically mean the love of wealth? And in turn, the absence of wealth does not automatically mean that you're viewing it properly. In fact, it seems that for Paul and for the author here, that the absence of wealth makes loving money more of a temptation. John Owen, a 17th century English theologian, wrote arguably the greatest and most significant commentary on the letter to the Hebrews. It spans seven volumes, and it took him over 20 years to complete. It's a remarkable work, and I'll be quoting it several times this morning. And what does he say about this idea? Owen writes, Contentment is a grace in the rich as well as in the poor. His point, you don't have to have earthly things to value earthly things too much. Think for a moment of the original readers. In Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34, we learn how some believers who were known to the readers joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. These believers have lost everything. And as other believers hear of these accounts, do you think they weren't tempted to build up their stash for when the persecution would finally hit their family? There may have been those in the congregation who were tempted to stockpile, to seek security and money, and in doing so, they reveal what they love. What this teaches us is that this is, not a, this is a unique temptation during uncertain times because we are more susceptible when vulnerable. John Owen connects this to trusting in God. He says, covetousness, or the love of money, is always accompanied with a distrust of God and fixeth the soul in an overvaluation of earthly things. His point is this, when we love money and try to gain wealth as a security, we show that we are not trusting in God. We value earthly things above heavenly things. And the result is that it actually adds anxiety and fear to an already sorrowful and anxious time. So it only compounds our cares. And this is what I want you to see. 
The reason we should pry our hearts away from loving money is because it cannot secure us. One example of where money cannot deliver on what it, what it promises is death. I think about a man named John Jacob Astor. 108 years ago, he was one of the wealthiest men alive. In today's dollars, his net worth would be somewhere around $2.3 billion. But in April of 1912, he and his wife decided to book passage on a new ocean liner headed for New York City called the Titanic. You see, he is now known as the wealthiest person to die on the Titanic. But consider what good was his $2.3 billion as he stood on the deck of that sinking ship. That's just one example of many where, many where money cannot secure you. And on the flip side, you see how freeing this is. You know, live, keep yourself free from the love of money. Loving money is enslaving. Even the way this command is worded pulls, out, pulls us out from under the anxious taskmaster of money and calls us instead to live generous and free, taking risks, knowing our security is not found in our bank balance. Believer, money adds no security to you. I love the question Josh Redberg asked in the book that we're reading as a church, Generous Living. He asks, is a Christian who has one dollar and Christ any less secure than the Christian who has one million dollars and Christ? You see, his point is money cannot secure you, so don't love it. So that's the negative command. Now let's look at the positive command, which makes the same point. Okay, what are we to do? Well, it's this. Be content. This command is familiar to us. But if we're honest, contentment is a difficult thing to find these days. I've heard contentment described as wanting what you have, which is another way of being satisfied with what you presently possess. And that seems incredibly rare today, even among Christians. In Philippians, Paul says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And in 1 Timothy, he gives some parameters for this contentment. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now, does that describe you? To be content is to say that you are good with your job, good with your house, good with your car, good with your neighborhood, your status, your yard, your bank account. And what he says here is this is the mark of a true Christian. One pastor said it this way, before we are converted, we are discontented materially and contented spiritually. When Christ comes into our lives, a complete revolution takes place. We become discontented spiritually, and we become much more contented materially. You see, it's a mark of believers that they are no longer characterized by discontentment, greed, envy, or covetousness. And it will do you well to consider the question, does this mark you? Are you always looking around for something better, for something more? Now, this command leads us now to the second reality of true security in God. The first one is that money cannot secure you. We saw both the negative and the positive command. 
Now on to the second reality. Number two, God will not abandon you. Number two, God will not abandon you. This is in the latter half of verse five. He says, keep yourself free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Look at the case he makes on how you and I can live free from loving money. It's by wanting what you have, contentment, but wanting what you have in Jesus Christ. It's in that word for, because it connects what follows with what was just said. And I always feel this tension when we're talking about New Testament commands uh, to have an affection. I would put loving money and being content in that category. I mean, you might be saying here, or in your home, I should say, you might be saying, yes, I want to be content, but how? Or why should I be content? I think the end of verse 5 provides the basis. What is the secret to contentment? Well, it's not found in your circumstances, and it's certainly not found in your money. It's found in the presence of God with us. And it's believing what he says here, that where true, that's where true contentment and security lies. It lies in trusting and being satisfied in God alone. Because who said these words? Who is the speaker? You see, this is a quote from the Old Testament, from Joshua 1.5. And there God is speaking directly to Joshua. And the amazing thing then is that this word to Joshua is now applied and spoken to us, to believers. The God of the universe who is almighty and above all and in whose hand the universe rests. The God who does whatever he pleases. This God has spoken to you, believer. And God cannot lie. He does not change his mind. He always tells the truth. And what is the truth here? Well, it's some of the most beautiful words in all the Bible. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, in English, double negatives are generally frowned upon. But that's not the case with the Greek language. Here we have three or four negatives in the original. So we could translate it this way. I will never, never fail you. Nor will I ever, ever forsake you. I want you to hear what Dan Wallace, a Greek scholar, says about the use of these negatives. He says the specific word choice, quote, denies potentiality. The negative rules out even the idea of, being, of this being a possibility, end quote. In strongest terms, God provides absolute security for his people. God will never withdraw his presence from you at any time or for any reason. And he will not let you be helpless in the face of suffering or anything, including the current pandemic we're in. This should utterly strip away our anxiety or our fear. And it's similar to the promise in Romans 8 that nothing will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is our treasure. And we have him every day, even if we lose our jobs or our pay doesn't increase. We do not lack with Christ because we have something that the world could never give. This also means that wealth is no object to God. 
One of the reasons our security is found in God is that his presence ensures his provision. They are inseparable. For every circumstance, if God is with you, he will provide and meet your needs. And during something like COVID-19, it's easy to feel alone and isolated. But a promise like this can sustain you wherever you are. God knows what you are dealing with because he has called you to this. God has called you brother, sister, mother, father, student, son, daughter, grandparent, to live during this time, to experience the stress and pain and emotions of COVID-19. God has put you here. And he deals gently with you by giving you the support of his presence. It allows you to rest in God during the turmoil of suffering, persecution, and uncertainty. Do you remember the scene of Jesus in the boat in Mark 4? You have Jesus and the disciples crossing the Red Sea or excuse me, the Sea of Galilee. And as they are crossing, a fierce storm comes up. And we read about how this scene, we read in this scene how there are waves breaking against the vessel and waters beginning to pour into the boat, threatening to sink it. And where is Jesus? Well, he's in the back of the boat, sleeping. The disciples come to him, they wake him up, and they say, do you not care? And how many of us have thought or said the same thing. God, do you not care? Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And suddenly we are told the wind stops and a great calm comes over the water. And what does Jesus say next? Well, he asks two questions. Why are you so afraid? And have you still no faith? What should have given the disciples the courage they needed? It's the reality that Jesus was in the boat. The one who created all things, the king, the Messiah, the one who they'd already seen do tons of wonders, who could calm the wind and the sea. This one was in the boat with them. And that's what our text means. It means God is with you. He is in the boat with you through whatever storm you are facing. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. This is the promise for us this morning, that he's here for you, believer, and that we need to believe it today. Now, if you're watching or listening this and you do not claim Christ's forgiveness, then this promise is not for you. In fact, the opposite is true. To reject God is to be forsaken by God. To say it another way, heaven is living in God's presence and hell is the loss of God's presence. Recently, I read in a book about God's presence through the Bible, uh, this quote, the authors summarize what, what comes of someone who rejects Christ. They say, judgment is first a terrifying encounter with the presence of a holy God, then followed by the loss of that very presence. Without Christ, you have no real security. And so I invite you to turn to Christ. I invite you to call out to him, 
to cry out to the one who died on the cross to forgive sins. You see, God will never leave us nor forsake us as Christians. And that promise chases away all discontentment. And it's a promise found in the gospel. You see, the word forsake is the same word used by Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. He cries out from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize what Jesus experienced on the cross in bearing our sins is what you and I deserve? We deserve to be forsaken, but in God's grace through Christ's work, we stand forgiven as believers because he was forsaken. And now, if you turn and trust in Jesus Christ or if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, God says to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that's the second reality. So money cannot secure you. God will not abandon you. The text continues with the final and third reality in verse six. Foes cannot defeat you. Number three, foes cannot defeat you. This is what we find in verse six. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Do you see the result here? Keep yourself from the love of money. Be content. Why? For God has said he'll never abandon you. And here he gives the result. We can confidently or boldly, courageously, that's what the word means, speak the truth. I think it's really important for us to confess these words, to actually speak them aloud. The author makes it clear that we can say these words like a child that has a right to call her dad, daddy. You and I as believers have the right to say these words, God is my helper. Incredibly, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 118.6, calling on God to be our helper, to be the one who is there in time of need. The Lord will come to your aid. He is on your side. The one who promised to never leave you is now inviting you to speak what is true. The Lord is our helper. Yet if we're honest, it does take courage because we live surrounded by enemies. It's like Psalm 23 where the Lord prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Who is the author referring to here when he says man? Well, it's the world, the unbelieving world, foes who oppose God and his people. And the point, with all due respect, is that in a confrontation between man and God, God wins. He always has. The fiercest persecutors of the church are long dead or will soon be in the grave. And the reality is, as Christians, we have nothing to fear, even in death. Like Martin Luther wrote all those years ago, and though this world with devil's filth should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Yes, we are, in some sense, soldiers surrounded by enemies. But we have hearts of iron and courage because we know that the Lord will come to our aid. 
So let us confess what we believe, that our assurance and confidence rests in God alone. We can say, I will not be afraid because we have true help and security in God who is with us. John Owen again said this, It is certain that believers do stand in need of help in that contest which they have with the world. Of themselves, they are not able to go through it with success. Yet have we no reason to fear an engagement in what is above our strength or ability when we have such a reserve of aid and assistance? But in whatever befalls us, we may say boldly, we will not fear. For if God be on our side, if God be for us, who shall be against us? Let whoso will be so. It is all one. The victory is secured on our side. When I was in junior high, I have a story from that time that kind of drives home this point. My dad was an assistant camp director at a camp in Michigan for 16 years, and so a lot of times during the summer, I would return from Wisconsin to Michigan, to this camp. And I remember this specific instance where we were in the dining hall. I was in the dining hall on a weekend, and there were a bunch of counselors, and I was in junior high at the time, and they decided, it was at night, they decided to tell ghost stories, which is a good camp thing to do. And uh, tell, they go through and tell all these goal, uh, ghost stories late into the night. And then there came the time when we all had to go back to, their, to our cabins. And I remember my cabin happened to be on the opposite side of all the counselors. And so the prospect of walking through the dark to my cabin was terrifying. But I also remember when a counselor said, you know what, I'll, I'll walk with you. And he happened to be, you know, 250 pounds, built 6'2", so it made me feel much better. His presence allowed me to walk back through the dark to my cabin. And it's the presence of the Lord that gives us courage and confidence. Three realities in our text. Money cannot secure, many cannot secure you, God will not abandon you, and foes cannot defeat you. Friends, we long for security a permanent, unshakable shelter from the storms in our lives. In the past few weeks, some of us have lost possessions, comforts. Some of us have lost our jobs. Some of us have lost money, and some of us have even lost loved ones. Where, then, is our security? Well, the hope is that our security, our true security, is found in God and believing that he will never abandon you. See, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And this is our security, something we cannot lose, that through Christ, God has made this promise to you, I will never leave you nor forsake you. To the discouraged this morning, I want you to hear this. God has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. So cry out to him. Even with the psalmist in Psalm 38, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. And remember that you are not alone. 
Last, I want to speak directly to those of you who are struggling or fighting with sin. You feel as though God has probably had enough and he's finally going to reject, reject you. Even though you're in Christ, you say, you don't know how I've messed up this past week. No, but God does. And he promises that he will never leave or forsake his children. Let me read you something that I adapted from John Bunyan to close. But you say, I am a great sinner. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you say, I'm an old sinner. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. But you say, I'm a backsliding sinner. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You say, I'm a hard-hearted sinner. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you say, I've sinned against light. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you say, I've sinned against mercy. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But you say, I have nothing to bring with me. God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let's pray. Father, we rest in your promises this morning and in Christ, who is not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but is one who in every respect has been tempted like we are, yet without sin. So now we draw near to your throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Give us mercy as we say, the Lord is our helper. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.